Riches from the East by Father Bede Griffiths. Presentation 2, Contemplative Theology and the Experience of God. We were thinking that the Oriental tradition would turn us towards a contemplative experience. And I want to reflect on a contemplative theology, how our theology could evolve from its present scholastic or scientific form into a contemplative form. And I would like to begin by saying that I think we have to revise our idea of the place of logical conceptual thought. We nearly all of us seem to think that logical conceptual thought, abstract thought, is the typical human way of thinking. But in reality, there are two ways. One is symbolic thought, and the other is abstract conceptual thought. And really, it is the result of the Greek genius, which has given us this orientation towards conceptual thought. One of my quarrels with Lonergan, who's a great philosopher, and I admire him very much, but he has four stages in human experience. He begins with common sense, then he moves on to theory, which is scientific, conceptual, abstract thought, then interiority, when you reflect on your thought and interiorize it, and then transcendence. The last two are excellent, but under common sense, he includes all the powers of myth and poetry, imagination, and so on. And we're led to think that we get beyond those when we come to theory, to scientific conceptual thought. But surely that is an illusion. There are two ways of thinking. One is abstract and conceptual, and it's necessary. I believe today they say that it's a function of the left side of the brain. And the other is the function of the right side. Get exactly how it goes. But two are necessary. But we're neglecting all the time this other mode of thinking and of experiencing reality, which is symbolic. And symbolic thought expresses itself in poetry and in the whole language of poetry. And when we begin to reflect, we realize that all the ancient scriptures of the world were poetic in form. See, when people had the deepest realization of God and tried to communicate their experience of God, they spontaneously put it in poetic form. Take the Rig Veda, the earliest scripture we have perhaps, all in the form of poetry and most wonderful poetry. Those of you who know Father Panica's Vedic experience will know something of the beauty of that poetry which he's managed to communicate in English. And then we think of the Quran. I can't read Arabic, but everybody says that one of the fascination of the Quran is its marvelous language. It has this tremendous power, poetic power in it. And that is why it holds people so deeply. And again, of course, we turn to the Bible. Much of it is simply poetry, like the Psalms, Book of Job. But all the rest of it is imaginative thought. It's not abstract conceptual thought like Greek philosophy. It's imaginative symbolic thought. We can think of the Hebrew prophets. All their language has this rich symbolic character. And it's very interesting that the Greek fathers used to say that the Hebrew prophets were rough, uncultured people. They didn't know any better. 
They couldn't speak in the terms of Greek philosophy. God spoke through them, of course, but they had to be translated into the language of Greek conceptual thought. They had no idea that this imaginative thought is richer than the abstract thought. And then we turn to the gospel, and Jesus habitually expresses himself in symbolic language. He chose the parable as the means by which to communicate the mystery of the kingdom of God. When he wants to say, what is this kingdom of God? He says, it's like a grain of mustard seed. It is like the leaven which a woman hid in the dough to make bread. It is like a, a net cast into the sea to catch fish. It is like a pearl of great price which somebody went and sold all that he had to get. Always he's using images, symbols, to open your mind to this deep truth which they signify, to which they point. And then we come to St. John and St. Paul. And to me, they are models of contemplative theology and of symbolic theology. You see, St. John's method is fascinating. He simply takes certain incidents from the life of Christ and shows their symbolic character. He starts with the cleansing of the temple. It seems to be a, just a practical thing. Jesus comes to cleanse the temple, but at the end of it, Jesus says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And St. John adds, he spoke of the temple of his body. Suddenly the whole thing is transformed. The temple of Jerusalem is seen as a symbol of the temple of the body of Christ, the mystical body of Christ in which human fulfillment is found. And then in his conversation with Nicodemus, he speaks of the spirit and he immediately uses the symbol of the wind. The wind blows where it will, you do not know whence it comes, whither it goes. Even so is everyone who is born of the spirit. And so the wind becomes a symbol of the spirit. And then he talks to the woman of Samaria and he asks her for a drink. And then he takes that thought up and says, if you ask me, I will give you water that lasts for eternal life. And the water becomes a symbol of eternal life. And then he goes on to feed the 5,000, takes the bread, distributes it among them, and then begins to talk of the bread from heaven. So step by step, St. John builds up a symbolic theology. A symbol, you see, is a sign which points towards a deeper reality. And that is what St. John is doing all the time. We could say the same of St. Paul. All his language is symbolic. Of course, both St. John and the Paul are using conceptual thought as well. It's not pure symbolism. But it's always the two together. And that is the richness of human speech, when the symbolic and the conceptual thought are married, when they're brought together. So the New Testament, then, is a beautiful example of contemplative theology. And that is why when you read the New Testament meditatively, it leads you into contemplation. Now we go on to the Greeks. And it is important to realize that the Greek fathers also had this deep vein of contemplation. And we can begin with Origen in the third century, a great master of the scripture, and we owe to him really the foundation of, of scriptural theology. And he was always using, of course, this symbolism of the Old Testament. Many think he overdid it with the allegorical meaning, but still he built up this wonderful system of symbolic theology based on the Bible and the New and the Old Testament. And then we come to the great Greek fathers. Now this is very interesting. 
nearly all of them were either monks or in very close contact with the monastic tradition. St. John Chrysostom, for instance, was not a monk, but he was in very close contact with the Syrian monks around Antioch, and his theology is inspired by this monastic tradition and again by this deep symbolism and this call to contemplation. St. Basil was himself a monk, became a bishop, and founded a monastic community, and he again expresses himself in this symbolic manner. And then we have Gregory of Nazianzum, Gregory of Nyssa, and they also lived monastic life for a time, later became bishops, and gave us the base of our Catholic theology, really. And St. Gregory of Nyssa is particularly interesting because he has three stages in Christian life, which later became traditional, the purgative, the illuminative, the unitive way. And the purgative way, he relates to baptism. It's a separation from the world, separation from sin, awakening to the light of truth. And the second is the illuminative way, and that is the way of meditation on the scriptures, the whole plan of God in creation, in redemption, of the church and of the angels, it's very deep reflection on the whole angelic order. All that belongs to the illuminative way. But then when we come to the unitive way, we enter into the darkness. This is very important. This is where this doctrine of the divine darkness begins. And for Gregory of Nyssa, the unitive way is meeting God in the darkness, beyond images and beyond thoughts, the experience of God in a unitive vision, you see. And so he lays the foundation, really, of a mystical theology. And then we come to one of the key figures in Catholic or Christian theology, Dionysius the Areopagite. I expect most of you know that it was probably a Syrian monk of the 5th or 6th century who took the name of this disciple of St. Paul and wrote under that name. And I think by divine providence, he was taken to be an apostolic writer and was totally accepted in the Catholic tradition. And he incorporated Neoplatonism into Catholic theology. And Neoplatonism, especially of Plotinus, is the nearest we come in the West to the Vedanta tradition in India. Plotinus may have been, and probably was influenced, by the Vedantic tradition, because Ammonia Saccas was his teacher in Alexandria, and it seems clear that he was influenced by the East. This is one of the points where the Indian tradition seems to have entered into the West. And so, uh, Dionysius gives us the most wonderful symbolic and contemplative theology. He has his ecclesiastical and celestial hierarchy, and he sees the whole creation as a theophany, a manifestation of God. And the ecclesiastical uh, hierarchy is God's manifestation in the church, in humanity. And then beyond that is the celestial hierarchy, God's manifestation in the angelic order, which is the cosmic order, really. Well, we tend to neglect the angels today, but they're extremely important. They're the devas in Hinduism, the divine, the gods, the, the, the principles of light. And so he has his celestial hierarchy. But then, beyond the ecclesiastical and celestial hierarchy, we enter into the darkness. And in the mystical theology, he says we have to go beyond concepts, beyond being itself, 
enter into the divine darkness and be illuminated by the ray of the divine darkness. And that is contemplation, you see. So that the whole of his theology is oriented towards contemplative, the experience of God in contemplation. So he is our model, you see, of a contemplative theology. Now, after Dionysius, you have the Middle Ages, and you still retain this contemplative character. Gregory the Great comments on the book of Job, for instance, and on Ezekiel, and it's all symbolic theology. And then my patron St. Bede, he was another typical medieval commentator, entirely based on the Bible, you see, with its symbolic character. And finally, St. Bernard, whom Thomas Burton called the last of the fathers, who continues this tradition of a contemplative theology. And of course, in the Song of Songs, he finds a marvelous symbolism for the union of the soul with God. So we have models, you see, of contemplative theology. And for those of us who are monks or nuns, the monastic theology of the Middle Ages is of extreme importance, because that was the last time that the church evolved a contemplative theology. Most of us get these publications of the Cistercian Fathers, which are uh, being circulated, uh, where we have St. Bernard, St. Aylred, William of St. Thierry, and so on, all contemplative theologians, you see, and they are our models. But after that, after the 12th century, comes the 13th century and scholastic theology, and that is where the change took place. Aristotle was discovered, Aristotelian method of logic and scientific exposition and logical systematization, and our whole theology moved over onto that plane, and it remained there until the present day. St. Thomas Aquinas, of course, was a great master, and don't let us ever forget, St. Thomas was a great contemplative. He used this method, this logical method, but he knew that the truth itself lay beyond logic, and he experienced it himself. And as you know, at the end of his life, he had such an overwhelming experience of God that he said, all that I have written seems to me like straw in comparison to what I have seen. And that is what we're aiming at. But nevertheless, the method of St. Thomas continued without his contemplative experience. And it went on for five centuries. Right into the 20th century, we had this scientific theology in the logical, systematic form, useful in its way, but extremely barren from a point of view of contemplation, you see. And I feel now we have the opportunity to open ourselves to a more contemplative theology. As I mentioned, I think Karl Rahner has opened the way with his idea of human self-transcendence, the experience of the divine mystery. He has opened the way to a contemplative theology, but we need now to bring the Oriental tradition into our lives if we're going to find a new way of expressing Christian faith in contemplative terms. And this is where the perennial philosophy comes in. Many of you will remember Aldous Huxley, way back in the 1940s, I think, wrote a book called The Perennial Philosophy. And for me, that was one of the first, and I think for many other people, it was the first introduction to this whole vast sphere of Eastern wisdom. He quotes Shankara at length, the Mahayana Sutras, the Taoist Lao Tzu, Chuang Tzu, marvelous texts from them, and some of the Sufis, and Meister Eckhart and the Christian mystics. And so he opened up this whole perennial philosophy, 
which is the common philosophy of Christianity, Hinduism, Buddhism, Taoism, and Islam and Sufism. And we used to call the theology of St. Thomas the perennial philosophy, and it's a branch of it, but it's only one branch. Plato, Aristotle, Plotinus, St. Augustine, they are a branch of the perennial philosophy, but beyond that is the whole tradition of Vedanta, Mahayana, Buddhism, Taoism, and Sufism. And that is what the church today has to discover, to open herself to it, and to assimilate this oriental wisdom, you see. So we shall really enter into the fullness of the perennial philosophy, the, the eternal philosophy. They say that this is the doctrine which underlies all the great religious traditions. There is a common tradition different in each system. Vedanta is different from Mahayana Buddhism. They're both different from Sufism, both different from Christian mysticism. But they all have a common base, and that is what we have to discover. So then, that is our Christian background to a contemplative theology. We turn now to the Hindu tradition, and we ask ourselves, what does the Hindu tradition teach us, and what does it show to us of this contemplative theology. And first of all, the Vedas. Now, my discovery in the Vedas, largely through Panika's Vedic experience, has been that the Vedas are based on this concept of the three worlds, the physical, the psychological, and the spiritual. I chanted the Gayatri Mantra, Om Bur Bhuvaswaha. Bur is the earth, Bhuva is the atmosphere, Swarga is the heaven. But that is the physical aspect. But psychologically, you also have the human base and the earth, and then you have the psychic, the transpersonal experience, and then you have the highest experience of all, the unity vision. And so what the Vedas teach us is, and this is extremely important for our whole understanding, that the whole creation always has a threefold character. Nothing is merely material. Every material thing, the stars, the earth, the atoms, all have a psychological character. They have a relation to the human consciousness. And it's been the great illusion of Western science during the last two or three centuries to imagine that there was a material world extended outside ourselves, unrelated to consciousness, and that we could simply observe it and characterize it and treat it as a mechanical system. And that, as you know, physics today has exploded, no longer holds. And we realize that matter and consciousness are interrelated. You cannot separate them. And so every physical object, earth and trees, plants, animals, everything has a psychological aspect, a relation to human consciousness. And then again, everything has not only a physical and a psychological aspect, Everything is related to the one supreme reality, the Atman, the spirit, Brahman, beyond. And so we live in this symbolic universe. You see, the physical symbolizes the psychological, and the psychological symbolizes the spiritual, and the whole is an integrated whole. What Father Panikkar, in one of his famous words, which he coins, calls a cosmotheandric reality, cosmos, the Earth, Theos, God, and Amir, man. It's God, man, and the universe are all discovered in their interrelationship, you see. And that is the vision we need, and that is the vision of the Vedas. Now, the next stage 
after the Vedas, or rather the end of the Vedas, is the Upanishads. And they were called Vedanta, the Anta, the end of the Vedas, because they brought the experience of the seers of the Vedas to a culmination. And the teaching of the Upanishads is summed up in four Mahavakyas, great sayings. And these are considered to be the very basis of the experience of God in Hinduism. And these four Mahavakyas are, first of all, Pranyanam Brahman. Brahman is consciousness. Now that was a tremendous leap, you see, from Brahman in the Vedas was the power which sustained the universe and which was present in the sacrifice. Behind all the physical phenomena of nature, they saw this Brahman, this ultimate reality, and in the sacrifice, that Brahman became present, became present as a power, and they recognized that Brahman as the power of creation present in the sacrifice. But this was external. And then, at the time of the Upanishads, or rather the Aranyakas, the forest books, which preceded the Upanishads, the seers retired to the forest to meditate. And in their meditation, they discovered Brahman is not merely this force power within the universe around. Brahman is in my consciousness. And that is a tremendous stage in human evolution when we begin to realize that consciousness is the key to reality. So, pranyanam brahman. Brahman is consciousness. And then the next one to say, I am atman brahman. This self is brahman. When I enter into myself, my consciousness, I discover an inner self. Beyond the body, beyond the mind, I discover this atman, this spirit, this self within. And I realize that my inner self is one with brahman, the source of the creation source of creation, the source of my consciousness are one. I am Atman Brahman. And that is the second great Mahavakya. And then the third one, Aham Brahmasmi. I am Brahman. Now let us remember that these Mahavakyas are expressions of a mystical experience. And they cannot properly be categorized. And if we choose to rationalize them, we can make them absurd. I am uh, Aham Brahmasmi can be I am God. And many people think that Hinduism is just a kind of pantheism, I am God. But it's not. It's a mystical utterance and it's a recognition that I, in the inmost depths of my being, am not this body, am not this soul, this psyche. I am one with that eternal spirit, that Atman, that Paramatman, the Supreme Spirit. I find myself only in my experience of the Atman, the spirit within, which is one with the Brahman, the source of all creation. That is the Hindu mystical experience. And it was interpreted in different ways, but the mystical experience underlies the whole Hindu tradition. And unless we know that, we get a glimpse of that experience, we will misinterpret, as many European scholars have completely misinterpreted, the Vedas and the Vedanta because they haven't realized the mystical experience which underlies it. And the fourth Mahavakya is Tattvam Asi. And that comes in the Chandogya Upanishad, which is one of the most revealing. And there the, the seer takes uh, one example he gives. He takes a fruit from a tree. And he says, break open that fruit, what you see. And he says, I see a lot of seeds. And he says, break open one of those seeds. What do you see? And he says, I don't see anything. Break open the seed, there's nothing inside. 
And he says, from that, what which you cannot see in that seed, all this great tree arises. From the hidden power in the seed, the whole tree grows. And so also, from that hidden essence, which is in all creation, the whole creation arises. And thou, Nachiketas, art that. Thou, you, in your inmost being, are one with that power which creates the universe. I, in the depths of my being, are one with the source of the whole creation. I find God in me, and me in God, you see, in Christian terms. So, those are the four Mahavakyas, and they are, as I say, the Hindu mystical experience, and we have to enter into that experience in order to assimilate it and to relate it to our own experience of God in Christ. That is our calling. Now, this experience of God is primarily this experience of the self. And I think that is the distinguishing mark of the Hindu tradition, that God is found in yourself, your inner self. As we will see, and as I said, there are many different interpretations, and you can have a monistic interpretation, you can have a pantheistic, but I think the doctrine itself is neither monistic nor pantheistic. It's a mystical intuition of the one reality which is discovered in your own depth of your own being, you see. So that is the orientation of a Hindu contemplation, to discover yourself. And I think this has great importance today you see, there are many people for whom the word God has either lost all meaning or has become positively unpleasant. It recalls childhood memories which they're trying to get away from. I've met many people coming to our ashram and they've been inoculated with Christian doctrine of a very crude form in childhood and their whole life is a struggle to get away from these images which were impressed on them in childhood, images of God of a false kind, and to discover something beyond. And that is the, the value of this, that we can get beyond these images and beyond all mere thoughts and discover the reality behind the image, behind the thought. For the continuation of this presentation, please turn this cassette over. It is not necessary to fast forward or rewind the tape.